0: That song we just sang, "Living for Jesus, that was my favorite song as a teenager growing up. I just love that song. So all these things have really touched my heart this morning. Uh, but we're going to turn to uh, a passage of Scripture that's not quite so uplifting. First Corinthians chapter 5. And as we turn to that, you know, some of the great benefit, perhaps the greatest benefit of expository preaching, going through the Bible verse by verse, line by line, it's uh, throughout books, so you take a whole book and see what God has to say. What, the real benefit of that is that we get the full counsel of God. Uh, we get all that God wants us to know and all that he wants to teach us, not the parts we like, uh, not the parts that are trendy, uh, not the parts that are easy. We get the whole thing, the whole package. And when we do that, we run into passages of Scripture that are uh, sometimes not what we would choose. Who would choose to preach on 1 Corinthians chapter 5? just out of the blue, you know? Who would preach on a passage of church discipline just because you wanted to? I can't think of anybody in their right mind who would do that. Brian questioned my sanity earlier. Uh, I'm not that insane. I just wouldn't do it. Because who wants to hear about that? But God wants us to hear about it. And that's why we preach it. That's why we go line by line, verse by verse throughout the scriptures. Uh, to teach what God has to say. And so when we come to 1st Corinthians chapter 5, we're looking at a most difficult, most sobering passage. One of the most difficult and sobering in that sense in all the scriptures is dealing with the problem of sin in the local church. Uh, But before we actually look at the passage itself, uh, we should ask some questions. Why why is it that we want to neglect this passage? Why is it that so uh, few want to preach it and so few churches do preach it? And why is it, even if it is taught and it it's so seldom practiced, why would that be? Well, I could give you a number of possibilities. First of all, it, it seems very judgmental, doesn't it? Uh, we get very, uh, in an age of tolerance, at least on uh, some levels, uh, we, uh, we're not supposed to say anything negative about anybody. It certainly seems harsh to preach on this passage. And then it doesn't always work. Uh, often people that are disciplined by the local church do not turn back to God. And so it, it isn't a cure-all. It isn't, it isn't something that always works like we hope it would. Uh, and then there's the minimization of sin today. We see so much sin in the world around us and even in our own lives that sometimes we, we, just, uh, we just don't take it as serious as we should. We don't see the seriousness of sin as the Lord wants us to see it. And then it chases people away, right? You're never going to find this passage preached at a church growth conference Uh, No uh, seeker-friendly attractional church preaches from this passage. It doesn't draw people. It's more likely going to chase people away. And when they leave, you know where they go? Right down the street to another church. That will take them in with open arms that could care less about their sin. A church that is faithful to care about the sins of their people and help them grow in Christ. Uh, they, They leave that church, go to a church that doesn't care, and they call that church loving and tolerant and kind where a church that dealt with their sin, kept them, kept them accountable, is considered pharisaical and, and judgmental. So, I can see why people don't preach on it. I see why I don't want to preach on it. But I'm going to, because it's in God's Word, and this is where we're at in the text of Scripture. Uh, we're looking at uh, this passage, is chapter 5, this week and next. And we're going to look today at the opening verses, verses 1 to 8, to see what God has to say about this subject of church discipline. And we're going to look at three different parts. First of all, the sin. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind that it does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. So the first sin we look at here is immorality. There's actually two sins. And Paul doesn't deal with the first sin very long. His main emphasis is the second sin. But the first sin is here. This is the presenting sin, the sin of immorality. Uh, first, we have to know that in the pagan cultures of the day, immorality of every kind was common and it was accepted. Uh, the, the Judeo-Christian ethic, the moral ethic of the Judeo-Christian view was not accepted in many places. It was rejected as, as it is today. And, uh, and so we find at Corinth in particular, this is a godless, godless City. Matter of fact, it's the most godless city in uh, in the known world at the time. Apparently, it it was known for its sin. It would be the sin city of the ancient world. Everything went at this particular city, and so to come up with a sin that would shock the world is a hard thing to come up with. And yet, this church had come up with a sin that even the Gentiles, even the unbelievers, uh, found shocking. And so that is, that is where we're at on that particular issue of immorality. What do we know about this sin? First of all, um, we don't know much. We know in verse one that there is a man who is in the church. He's a member of the church. He is uh, what Paul would call later in chapter uh, in verse eleven a so-called believer, uh, which meaning that uh, he is professing believer. Could be saved. Claim to be saved. There's some questions on the table about that. But nevertheless, he is part of the local church there. And he is either cohabiting with or has married his stepmother. Now, we don't know what happened to the father. The father could be dead or maybe he's not. We we don't know. We don't know anything about him. And we don't really know much about the woman. Uh, She's not condemned here. She's not spoken of here. So uh, perhaps she's not part of the church. She might be an unbeliever. Or Uh, she's forced to do this in that ancient world a lot of slavery was going on and a lot of people a lot of women in particular weren't given choices about how they would live and so that could be the case we don't know but we do know there's a man who claims to be a Christian living in open sin of such a nature that it shocks the world of the ancient days Um, and quite frankly According to ancient texts—not not the Bible—but other texts, the ancient world didn't do this. Cicero, uh, who, who was a philosopher that lived about hundred years before this time, said that, uh, that that this type of sin was such an incredible crime that he'd only heard of it once in all the ancient world. That—that's a world. That's how how unbelievable this sin was that was going on at the church there. And Paul says it's being reported that there's immorality among you. That word reported is in the present tense, meaning that it's being being progressed. You know, it's moving forward. People are whispering. They're talking about it. The world's talking about it. And the world was saying, look, down there at that church at Corinth, these people claim to believe in Jesus Christ, who came to die for sins and save you from sins, and yet look how they live. They're they're living in such a way that they're tolerating this kind of... It it was considered incest in the church. And they were tolerating that. And the the whisper campaign was going forth as a result of that. What's wrong with you people? They They were giving a black eye to the gospel, a black eye to Jesus Christ. And they, as we'll see in a moment, thought they were doing quite well. And I'm afraid, of course, things haven't changed much, have they? Almost every week we hear of another Christian leader who has fallen into moral sin or other kinds of important sins, big sins. And uh, it gets broadcast all over the media, right? Uh, whenever you hear about a Christian leader who has committed immorality or whatever, or even a bunch of people that they have on surveys and say there's been this or that, uh, the, the, the secular media broadcasts it everywhere. Say, and basically they're pointing a the finger and saying, you people who claim to be so righteous... You people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, the sinless one, who've been saved from sin. You people, look how you live. So that's not uncommon today. Of course, the media never reports the 99.9% of faithful pastors and missionaries and church leaders who never fall into these kinds of sins. But whenever they can pick up a nugget to, to blaspheme the church or blaspheme Christ, of course they do so. So we're not unfamiliar with this kind of territory. The church was tolerating then this immoral, incestuous situation in the church. But here's the second sin, and this is the one that Paul's going to hammer out at, and that is the sin of pride, verse 2. You will become arrogant and have not mourned instead. Pride. Now, he's been talking about pride from the beginning here in this book and will continue pretty much throughout the whole book. This is one set of arrogant Christians, and he he calls them out at every turn and gives examples. This is just one of them. Now, I would say this, the local church is not responsible for the sin of every one of its members, right? Or or conversely, how they live righteously. Uh, The best of churches will have people in their midst that will do wrong, do terrible wrongs at times. Uh, We're not responsible for that as such, but we are responsible for how we react to such a thing. And so Paul is dealing with the reaction of this church to an immoral situation that was so shocking, even the world didn't understand why they were tolerated. So he's going to look now, we're going to look at this section, at the general, general teaching. Next week we'll look more closely at the, the specifics on exactly how you were to, are to deal with such a situation. But uh, here we're looking at the general situation and what does he say well first of all he said uh, you have become arrogant you have become proud um, but you should have mourned and the word mourn is a word used for at funerals when a loved one has died is there any deeper hurt and pain than at the death of a loved one and the mourning the sadness he said that's, a, that's your attitude that's what it should have been you should have been mourning you should have been grieving deeply over the sins of this sin that was going on in the church. They didn't because they either didn't care or they minimized the problem or they didn't want to make waves or whatever. But secondly not only should they have mourned but secondly they should have removed. Let's go on. You have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Now we're getting into hard stuff. It's always sad to watch a Christian go into sin. We can can deal with that. We can believe that. We can follow that. But now we're getting into the territory that is difficult. Remove this one from your midst. And this is not incidental. Four times in this little chapter they're told to do exactly that. Take a look. We see we're already in this verse here. Drop down to verse 5. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. We'll look at that in a moment. They're actually, he's actually delivering this person over to the devil. Go on down to verse 7. Clean out the old leaven. that you may be a new lump. Clean it out. Get rid of this, this, uh, this sinful situation. And then drop all the way down to the last verse. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. There's no question what he wants them to do. He wants them to remove this sinful person from among themselves. So instead of being arrogant, they were to remove this person. Uh, This uh, is a difficult thing for people to look at here. Uh, Except for verse 1, Paul does not deal with the immoral man. So I want you to note that. His emphasis is not on the immorality of the sinner, although that's there, that's presenting. The issue is how the church reacts. How does the church deal with that? So this is what he's talking about here. And he says they are arrogant. In what sense could they be arrogant? What is he talking about? I think what he's saying here is they were seeing themselves as so broad-minded, so loving, so open-armed, that they were accepting this unbelieving, this, this, this Christian who lived in open sin without any rebuke or challenge or discipline. And they saw themselves as arrogant. In what sense? Because they thought their way was better than God's way. Because they thought they loved, they wouldn't have said this, but they thought they loved more deeply than God did. Because God is giving clear teaching, right here, on what God wants them to do. And we know nobody loves more deeply than God loves. And yet they were seeing themselves as beyond that, they've come up with their own plan... And when they were disagreeing with God's plan, and they were feeling themselves more loving than God was. is, that is the highest form of arrogance possible. And Paul does not shirk from calling them out. Many years ago when our boys were in elementary school over in Chatham, I, I was volunteering on occasion. And I remember being there one time, and, uh, and there was a conversation going on between a couple of women. I think it was in the library and where I was helping out. I don't think I was directly involved in the conversation, but it's been a while. But, but as I listened to the conversation, one of the gals said, our pastor has been caught in, a, an, immoral, in an immoral affair. He has committed a, a, adultery against his wife. And the other gal said, well, what have you, what's happened with that? What's gone on? Well, we kept him in the church. He's still our pastor. And then she said, the other gal said, well, how could that be if he's living in that, that kind of sin? They said, because our church is just so loving. So broad-minded, so so loving that we have kept him in our body to try to restore him in that way. Sounds very loving, doesn't it? You know what Paul would say? Very arrogant. Because you're not doing what God says to do. Whole different world from what God says to do here. What is at stake then is simply a low view of sin, rather Uh, Not simply a low view view of sin, but a misguided view of what the church is all about. If the church is a temple of God, chapter 3, then how can we tolerate a polluted church if we love it? Let's move on. That's the sins. Now let's look at what we're supposed to do about it. Let's look at the discipline. In verse 3 he says, For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. Now Paul is going to talk about what to do And he gives us two parts about this He starts off by in this verse 3 And said, here's what you are to do And verse 3 presents a couple problems for us One is biblical And the other is experiential Biblically he says I on my part have already judged him But remember chapter 4 verse 5 Go back there one page 4 or 5 Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time So Paul has just said, just in the chapter before, don't go on passing judgment. Leave that to God. And now he comes to chapter 5, and what is he doing? He says, I've already judged this person. Is that a contradiction in Scripture? Hardly. Paul is saying in chapter 4, don't judge the motives of people. Don't judge the sincerity of their lives or their ministries. Don't judge things you cannot know. But in chapter 4... Or chapter 5, he is dealing with what it, we can be known, with open, blatant sin that has not been repented of. And he's talking about that, and he's saying the church must judge that. The church must deal with that. And Paul says, I, on my part, have already done so, in verse 3. Then he moves on to talk about two parts of this discipline. One is that, that we need, if we're going to do this, we're going to need a special kind of power. A power that comes from Christ. Look at verse 4. He says this, In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now now as you look at those verses, notice that he's talking now about what they ought to be doing as, as far as dealing with this. And they're going to need the power of Christ. You see, experientially, I should have mentioned this. Biblically, there's this issue of contradiction, which I've explained. But experientially, the question comes up, and in my mind, in your mind, is who am I to to set in judgment on anybody else's sins? I mean, I'm certainly not perfect. And even if I don't have some open sin that others can point to, I know in my own heart that I'm a sinner. And I do sinful things, and I think sinful things. So who am I to stand in judgment upon another person after all we don't want to be like remember Nathaniel Hawthorne's great book The Scarlet Letter remember that When uh, in that particular book in the puritanical age she commits adultery has a child and is, is condemned to wear a letter A on her clothing for the rest of her life so everywhere she went everybody knew she was an adulteress is that how the church is supposed to behave is that in obedience to a passage like this well, not at all. That is not what Paul's talking about here. But it can come across that way because what we're looking at and we're going to see in a moment is we're looking at the, at the action that was drawing people to repentance. And he's not willing to leave people in their sins. But let's come back to that in just a moment. Go on and look at the power here he's talking about. He says in verse 4, In the name of the Lord Jesus. So this is under the, the, the authority of Jesus Christ right, and with the power of the Lord Jesus, that's quite a statement, in the name of, and in the power of the Lord Jesus, this is not simply something a church does, it's not something people do, this is done under the authority, and with the power of Jesus Christ himself, so power is needed, and this is no hollow threat, now the action, this is where it gets exciting, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh All right, here we go What exactly is church discipline? A few practice it today and if they do practice it, they do not practice it normally with rare exception according to the teachings of this passage So when I've talked to pastors or read books on this subject by good conservative pastors and leaders on church discipline I almost always hear this, uh, we discipline such and such, and when you ask them what they've done, well, we took their names off our membership roles. Now, first of all, they didn't have a membership role in the first century church. They didn't have to write these things down. The churches were small, and they only had one in town. You couldn't trot down to the Baptist church over here when you got mad at the Methodist church. You had to be there. There's only one, and they had to deal with it. So this, taking your name off a membership role means absolutely nothing. In context of this passage of scripture. And some will say well we we don't let them minister. They can come to church. They can be under the worship. They can join us. But they can't uh, uh, sing in the choir. They can't work in the nursery. They're they're limited because of that. And then I go back to this passage. And it doesn't say anything like that. Does it? Let's be honest with scripture here. As hard as it might be. Let's be honest with scripture. He doesn't say remove them from the membership role. He doesn't say, don't let them sing in the choir. He says, remove them from the congregation. They're not allowed to come worship. They're not allowed to partake in communion. They're not allowed to be part of the body. That sounds so harsh, doesn't it? But let's follow along. don't Don't be arrogant. Don't think your plan is better than God's. You're in dangerous territory when you do that. But let's go back to our passage. And see what he actually says here. He goes beyond removing here. He said, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What in the world does that mean? The word flesh here is, is very, very important. It's key. Uh, some think he's talking about the, the spiritual nature. The, 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 the sinful nature that all of us still have until the Lord comes back. And that somehow by this action, the flesh, that sinful flesh will be destroyed. But that doesn't work, does it? It doesn't work because our sinful flesh is never destroyed in this life. Galatians chapter 5 says, until the day the Lord takes us home, we will deal with our flesh. So that doesn't work. So the only other option for flesh is the physical body. And it works well with this passage because right in the same verse it goes on to talk about the spirit. So he's talking about the physical body versus the spiritual soul. He says something's going to happen to the body to save the soul. So we're looking then at at the physical body in this case. So what is the church doing when the believer is removed from the church? It, It involves casting them, now catch me, casting them back into the heathen world a world that scripture says is controlled by the devil. The devil is the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air. And when a believer is removed from the body of Christ for sinfulness, they are cast out out beyond the protection of the body of Christ, found in the church, and into a world system controlled by the devil. And at that point, according to this text, Satan then is at liberty to do whatever he wants to with the body and the life of that individual. And that's a scary thought. That's a, that's a scary thought to think that we now are out from under the protection of God's people, of God's church, and of God himself. And, and he is allowing us to be in the domain of the devil where he can do what he chooses to do with our physical body and with our lives. What happens if such a person is cast out like this guy here and, he, and nothing happens to him physically or with his life? His life goes on great! Here's what I'd say, that person is not a believer. That just a, That's just, an imp, that just telling us this person does not know Christ. Because this passage I think is pretty clear. That if you know Christ and you're no longer under the protection of the body of Christ you are in open territory where Satan can do what he pleases with you. And I can't think of anything more frightening possible than that. Coronavirus, psh, you know, critical race theory, who cares? There's, all, there's always going to be another thing, right? You be, you, you're cast out into the domain of the devil. My friends, you ought to be trembling. You ought not be able to get out of your chair today if that's where you're at. You ought not, ought not be able to move forward another day until you're right with God. That's a frightening, frightening thing to consider. So we looked at the sins. We looked at the discipline. Why? So that's the next big question. Why in the world does God want us to do this type of thing? Two things. Two purposes for church discipline. Number one, restoration. Chapter 5, the latter part. So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. The purpose of church discipline is not to get even. It's not to show somebody who's boss not have, not to, it's not a power trip. It's a loving action in an attempt to restore someone to right relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the last tool in the toolbox of the church to put pressure on someone who is living in sin to come back to Christ. After every rebuke, every teaching, every coming alongside to, to draw them forward when all is done this is our last tool in our toolbox to try to put the pressure on them to walk with Jesus Christ to repent of their sins and so forth and when that happens he said this the spirit might be saved now this is the most difficult statement in the passage in what sense is the spirit saved I, th- I think there's two pos- two things here possibly overlapping number one if they're not Christians they now can be recon- recognizing they're not Christians and come to Christ for salvation. So when we think about the seriousness of this, folks, if you're not sure you're saved here right now, that you're not absolutely certain you know Christ is your Savior, uh, then, then this is, shows the importance of that. So important that, that a so-called brother who thinks he's saved but is living in sin is disciplined by the church today to try to demonstrate to such a person that they don't know Christ. The second possibility is this person is a Christian, but he's going to be rescued from the destruction of his flesh, his body, by this action as they come back to repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what if that doesn't happen? What if we've disciplined five people in five years and nobody's turned back to Christ? So should we just quit? I mean, that's, that's actually kind of the rhetoric out there. We tried it. It didn't work. All it did is cause caused trouble. Uh, people got angry. Uh, there's a lot of people who believe in church discipline as long as it's not disciplined towards my kid or my relatives. Suddenly blood changes everything. Um, and this causes so much problems. There are, churches lose a lot of people if they try to do this. Why in the world do it? Especially if it doesn't seem to be productive. Well the passage of scripture here doesn't give us those options but here's another thing even if the person is not restored and remember that is the key that is what we're after that's what we're going for restoration the second thing though is purification if it doesn't restore the the individual it brings purification to the church so we start with verse 6 here "said your boasting is not good do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump of dough Now, there's three reasons, then, why it's necessary to bring this person under discipline. First of all, because if we do not, it will affect the whole church. It will affect the whole church. He says here, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's speaking here of the church. What Christians often say, and this church probably said, was this. "He said, it's none of our business this what this, the sins of this person. We're not going to deal with it. It's none of our business. Let it go. And if we try to discipline them, it's not going to work anyway. But Paul says, if you look the other way at sin, if you tolerate open rebellion in the church, you are telling the congregation that sin does not matter. And sin is not serious. And when you do that, that begins to, uh, an effect, that begins to permeate in the church in such a way that the church becomes increasingly polluted, like leaven. Now, I used to think leaven was, uh, was yeast, and I, you know, you put yeast in dough, and the bread raises, uh, but I found out later that's not exactly true, this is not exactly yeast. Leaven's a little bit different, uh, it, it, it was the keeping back of a little bit of a portions of last week's dough, allowing it to ferment, then adding it to the next week's dough so that that fermentation permeates the whole bread uh, like sourdough bread. Are you familiar with that? Sourdough bread is exactly like that. So I got a little experience with sourdough bread. My mother for a while uh, had sourdough bread. She had to feed it every day. Do you, some of you have ever done this? It was in the refrigerator, and I remember having to feed it to keep it to grow, keep it growing. I, f- I found it very fascinating. I was probably eight years old, and we're feeding this thing in the refrigerator, you know. And, and the thing that really got me nervous was we went on vacation one time, and my mother had to have a neighbor friend come in to feed the, feed the dough. You know? We didn't have any cats to feed or dogs, but we had the dough to feed. And and, I, and this, I'll and i be honest, this is honest truth. Some of my stories are a little bit embellished. This one is true, right? This this, not, you know, this is true, at about eight years old, I was afraid when we came back from, from vacation. And you have to understand, remember, remember you old timers? Remember one of the first early horror movies was The Blob? You remember The Blob? It was this blob of what, I don't know what it was, Silly Putty or something. Taking over the world. And I honestly believe when I came back that the sourdough would have taken over the kitchen. I was quite concerned about it. What I found out is, that didn't happen by the way. What, what I did find out is that you had to keep feeding this thing. As you fed it, it permeated the old bread dough. And, and, and whatever you put in there, it just filled it up. It took on, on its own life. So that's what he's saying here. Look, if you are going to allow sin in the church, it will permeate every facet of the church. The whole body will be infected with with a low view of sin and a low view of God. And he says that's a high price to pay. That is not what he wants us to do. Don't be arrogant. Realize that leaving a, a willful, outwardly sinful individual in the body is going to infiltrate the rest of the body and pollute it secondly is necessary because of our position in Christ look at verse 7 cut out clean out the old leaven so that you might be a new lump just as in fact you are just as you are in fact unleavened it's getting more complicated as we go through but try to stay with me He's going to do, give us an illustration of the Old Testament feast. And we're not as familiar with that, most of us, as the people in Paul's day probably were. So there's two feasts he had in mind here. The first was the Passover. We're kind of familiar with that. Remember in the Old Testament at the Exodus, the, the, at the Passover, the Lord passed over the people. If they had put blood on the doorpost, on the, it was the 14th day of the month, uh, then they, he would pass over them. Now, following the Passover uh, celebration or ceremony. There was another feast called unle- uh, that was called unleavened bread. For the next seven days, the, there was to be no unleavened bread in the community. All the old unleaven, all the old leaven, and all the old le- unleavened uh, old le- leaven bread. I'm sorry, anything that had to do with leaven. Let's get back there. Was to be thrown away. There should be no leaven in the camp no leaven being used it was a feast of unleavened bread in other words if we're going back to the sourdough bread illustration the old bread was thrown in the garbage taken away and started all over again that's the illustration that he's using so what he's saying here is look and with that illustration clean out the old leaven get rid of it throw it away see, my, see the illustration? So that you might be a new lump. Start over. This church needs to start over. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. He's not saying start over in your own ingenuity and power. He is saying start over with the understanding of who you are in Christ. You are, he said, unleavened. You do not have the infiltration of sin in your life. You have been cleaned up. Live that way. The Lord has gone to to great lengths to save you from sin. now live that way as unleavened. See the illustration a little complicated, but I hope you get it There's an old fable of an eagle's egg that somehow got in a prairie chicken's nest Don't ask me how it 's a fable and the when the, when the chicken when, when the eagle was born, he lived with the chickens prairie chickens. he scratched it in the ground one day he was looking in the sky and he saw. A eagle, and he says, what's that? He said, that's an eagle. Somebody said, but we could never be like that. And So he went back to scratching in the dirt and never lived like an eagle. He didn't know who he was, and therefore he never lived out his design. If you don't know who you are in Christ, you'll never live out your design. These people needed to know that the Lord has purified them. He had cleansed them. They were unleavened. They need to live in that way. And then finally, not only was it necessary to remove the sinner because it will affect the church as a whole, and secondly, because of the position in Christ, but thirdly, because of Christ's sacrifice. Now, it's getting more and more difficult here. Verse, verse uh, Let's go back to 7. Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed... Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, in the Exodus, we remember the Passover. The, the, the Passover, the, the Lord passed over the people. If they had slain a lamb, put the blood on the doorposts and so forth, the Lord passed over them, they did not die. The Lord was then would be our Passover lamb. The Lord did for us what the Passover lamb did for the people. By slaying that lamb in obedience to God and putting the blood on the doorpost, when the Lord passed over, he didn't take their lives. The lamb died in their place. The Lord has done that for us folks. And if you're not a Christian here, listen carefully. You deserve to die in your sins. You deserve eternal hell. But the Passover lamb died for us. Jesus Christ went to the cross, died for us, took our sins So that when we trust him for the forgiveness of sin, he passes over us and we are not, we never are held accountable for our sins because Christ died in our place. Without that, all would be lost. The Jews in response to the death of the Passover then removed all the leaven in the camp. And now he's saying here, this is how we should live. Catching the illustration is a tough one. But he said, here's what the Jews did after the lord passed over and saved them from death the people removed all leaven from their community for a week to symbolize what he's talking about here when christ passes over and dies for our sin and saves us all the leaven all the sinfulness all the pollution all the corruption for which we are eternally should be eternally guilty and held in judgment for is gone We're a new lump. Now some of you know that you're kind of lumpy, but that's what I'm talking about. We're we're a new lump. We're a new people. Our sins have been forgiven. We're we're cleaned out of all that because of Christ. Now, therefore, here's his application. He says, therefore, because of that, you, you should be moving from your life malice and wickedness. Don't live like you used to live don't live in malice, don't live in anger, don't live in wickedness don't live in immorality don't live that way but instead he said with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth live out the life he's given you with sincerity and truth. The word sincerity means purity fits our passage doesn't it? Purity it's the idea of what you see when the sun comes through a window, you know you got a window at home and it looks clean and then the sun comes through And you see the smudges? That's the word sincerity. Smudges need to be removed. It shouldn't just look clean. It should be clean. And he's saying this is how we should live. Because Christ died in our place as our Passover. Live out that kind of life. For him. And truth is obedience to God. Don't come up with your own plans. Don't come up with your own designs about anything. Including this subject. Live out truth. That's how we should live. In obedience to him. Now what is Paul's point? It's this. Since Christ died to redeem us from sin. For his church to ignore sin in its congregation. In its body. Is an insult to Christ. And it tells us that we're not interested. In the benefits he died for us. And the church that understands that. And appreciates the death of Christ. Will live a life of purity. And dedication. And so will the individual's. And by the way, just a sidebar. Do you see the importance of the local church here? For those that are hitchhiking through a church, popping around from church to church, not really settled into any church, not ministering in any church, don't see the importance of the church. Do you see the importance of the church? He's not playing games here. He's talking about the, the local church that holds us accountable to live for Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ died for His church. And he died for the people you've saved in that church. So I leave you with those words. This is one of the most solemn and complicated passages you want to find. I trust you understand it better. But here's the main thing. If there's sin in your life, Christ didn't save you for you to stay in your sins. Live out a life of sincerity and truth. If you're not a Christian, Jesus Christ died to save you from your sins. You need to come to him now and let him save you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's a a glorious passage when you think of it from God's angle instead of what the world thinks of. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for your wonderful word. Such a hard passage, Lord, and yet so fruitful, so useful in our lives. Help us, Lord, to, to take this for how you've given it. Thank you for it, Jesus, in your name. Amen.